Chapter Twenty Two of Babu Jabberjee, B.A. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Babu Jabberjee, B.A. by F. Anstey. Chapter Twenty Two. Mr. Jabberjee places himself in the hands of a solicitor, with certain reservations. I concluded my foregoing instalment, narrating my service of a writ for breaching a promise of marriage with a spirited outburst of insouciance and devil-may-carefulness. But such courage of a Dutch evaporated deplorably on closer perusal of the said writ, which contained the peremptory mandate that I was to enter my appearance within the incredible short notice of eight days, or the judgment would be given in my absence. Now it was totally out of the question that I was to prepare a long, complicated defense, and have the requisite witnesses, and also perfect myself in the customs and etiquettes of common law procedure, all in such a ridiculously brief period, and yet, if I remained perdu, with a hidden head, I could not hope for even the minimum of justice, since, hey-ho, les assemps ont toujours tort, so that I shed blistering and scalding tears like a spanked child, to find myself confronting such a devil of a deep sea, and my day was dismal and my night a non-entity, until, by a great piece of potluck, on going up the next morning to the library of my inn, I espied my young friend Howard in the compound, busily employed in a lawn-tennis game. Having partially poured the cat from my bag already into his sympathetic and receptive bosom, I decided to confide in him my hard case in its entirety, and so made him a secret sign that I desired some private confabulations at his earliest conveniency, which he observing, after the termination of the match, came towards the remote bench whereon I was forlornly moping, and sat down kindly by my side. This young Albut Innet, I am to mention here, had only just missed succeeding in the passing of bar exam, owing to the inveterate malignancy of his stars and lack of a more industrial temperament. But from the coolness of his cheek and complete man-of-the-worldliness, is a most judicious and tip-top adviser to friends in tight places. Experto crede, for, when he had heard the latest particulars of my shocking imbroglio, he promptly gave me the excellent advice that I was to consult a solicitor, strongly recommending a Mr. Sidney Smartle, who was a former classmate of his own, and a good thundering chap, and who, he thought, was not so overburdened as yet by legal business that he could not find time for working the oracle on my behalf. "'And look here, Jab,' he added. He has sometimes the extreme condescension to address me as an abbreviation. "'I'll trot you up to him at once, and I say, a one idea, tell him you mean to be your own counsel, and do all the speechifying yourself.' native prince, in brand-new wig and gown, defending himself single-handed from wiles and artful adventures. Why, you'll knock the jury as if of their boots!' "'Alack,' said I sorrowfully, "'though I am quite competent to become the stump orator at short notice, 
I do not see how I can enter my first appearance until I have carefully instructed Messrs. Ram and Jalpaniboy in the evidence they are to give and leave untold, etc., and a week is too scanty and fugitive a period for such preparations. "'Nonsense and stuff,' he replies. "'You will have a lot more than that, since the week only applies to entering an appearance, which is a mere farcical formality that old Sid can perform in your place on his head,' at which I was greatly relieved. But on arrival at Mr. Smartle's office in Chancery Lane, we were disappointed to be informed, by a small juvenile clerk, that he was absent at Wimbledon on urgent professional affairs, and his return was the unknown quantity. However, after waiting till close upon the hour of tiffin, he unexpectedly turned up in a suit of knickerbockers, carrying a long, narrow bag full of metal-headed rods, and, although rather adolescent than senile in physical appearance, I was vastly impressed by the off-handed cocksurety of his manner. My friend Howard introduced me, and exhibited my doleful predicament in the shell of a nut, whereupon Mr. Smartle jauntily pronounced it to be the common garden breach of promise, but that we had better all repair to the First Avenue Hotel and lunch, and talk the affair over afterwards, which we did in the smoking-room after lunch, with coffee, liquors, and cigars, etc., for which I had to pay, as a Tommy Dodd, and the odd man out of pocket. Mr. Smartle, after listening attentively to my narrative, said that I certainly seemed to him to have let myself into the deuced cavity of a hole by so publicly proclaiming my engagement, but that my status as an Oriental foreigner, and the fact I had asserted, viz., that my promise was extorted from me by compulsion and sheer physical funkiness, might pull me through, unless the plaintiff were of superlative loveliness, which, fortunately, is by no means the case. He added that we had better engage Witherton Q.C., as he was notoriously the crossest examiner at the common bar. But to this I opposed the sine qua non, that I am to have the sole control of my case in court, and reap the undivided kudos, assuring him that I should be able to cross-examine all witnesses until they could not stand on one leg. From some private motives of his own, he sought to overcome my determination, hinting that, as my calling an election to the bar were not yet an ancient history, I might not possess sufficient experience, and moreover that, by appearing in baristial garbage, I should infallibly forfeit the indulgence shown by a judge to ordinary litigants, to which I responded by pointing out that I was a typical Indian in the manner of legal subtlety and ready-made wit, and that, if not capable of conducting my own case, how then could I be fit to undertake a logomachy for any third parties? Finally, that is proverbially unnecessary to keep a dog when you are equally proficient in the practice of barking yourself. Whereupon, silenced by my a fortiori and reductio ad absurdum, he gave way, saying that it was my own affair, and, anyhow, there would be plenty of time to consider such a matter, since the plaintiff might not choose to do anything further till after the long vacation 
and we could easily postpone the hearing of the action until midsummer of next year. I, however, earnestly protested that I did not wish so procrastinated a delay, as I desired to make my forensic debut at the earliest possible moment, and urged him to leave no stone unturned to get the job finished by November at least, suggesting that if we could ascertain the name and address of the judge who was to try the case, I might call upon him, and, in a private and confidential interview, ascertain the extent of his disposition in my favour, and the length of his foot. To which Mr. Smartle replied that he could not recommend any such tactics, as I should certainly ascertain the dimensions of the judicial foot in a literal and painful manner. Now I must conclude with a livelier piece of intelligence. I am now in receipt of the wished-for invitation to visit the all-but-innet family at the elegant mansion, or, to speak Scottishly, Manse. They have hired for a few weeks in the savage and romantic mountains of Ayrshire N.B. Mrs. A.I. wrote that there is no shooting attached to the Manse, but several aristocratic friends of theirs own moors in the vicinity and will inevitably invite them and their visitors to sport with them, so that, as she believed I was the keen sportsman, I had better bring my gun. Alack! I am not the happy possessor of any lethal weapon, but having since this invitation practiced diligently upon tin-moving beasts, bottles, and eggs rendered incredibly lively by a jet of stream, I am at last an au fait with a crack-shot, and no end of a nimrod. I do not think I shall purchase a gun, for there is a young English acquaintance of mine who is the devil's own volunteer, and who will no doubt have the good nature to lend me his rifle for a week or two. As to costume, my tailor assures me that it is totally unnecessary to assume the national raiment of a Scotch, unless I am prepared to stalk after a stag but why should I be deterred by any cowardly fear from pursuing so constitutionally timid a quadruped? I have therefore commissioned him to manufacture me a petticoat kilt, with a checkered tartan, and other accessories, for when we are going to Rome, it is the mark of politeness to dress in the Romish style. The Caledonian costume is indubitably becoming, but would i venture humbly to think be greatly improved by the simple addition of some kneecaps end of chapter twenty two